Esteban alluded to it earlier by saying, what a week. I actually wrote down the very first thing I was going to say this morning is, what a week. What a week. Um, so much drama and emotion this week. So much significance this week. We knew that it was coming. We knew we had a, a presidential election. We, we've known, of course, the, div the divisiveness in our country. We've known the, the passion and uh, maybe the... Um, frustration uh, that this whole election season has brought about, and, and, and yet here we go. This week, we, we voted, we got an answer, and uh, boy, it was tumultuous, wasn't it? There was uh, so, many, so many reactions, and I, I'm wondering this morning if maybe you're struggling to process all of that. No matter your viewpoints politically, no matter who you voted for, how, how are you processing all of that this week? And maybe you're a political winner this week wondering, why are so many people upset? Or maybe you're a political loser this week wondering why and why you're so upset. I um, Just like you, I, I mean, I'm, I'm connected online. I'm, I'm, I'm reading Facebook. I'm reading Twitter. I'm reading news articles. And... Uh, you know, I had two thoughts this week as I, as I was being bombarded with all that's being said this week. The first thought was, man, I wish we could all just turn this off for a week. You know, I was tempted to just, I just, just shut it down so that I don't have to hear all of that. Not because I don't want to hear, but because my heart just couldn't take all of, again, just the, the, the continuation of the, the, the tumultuousness and the divisiveness of the rhetoric out there. And yet at the same time, I didn't want to shut it down because I want to hear. Uh, not, not to satisfy some, uh, some desire of mine to, to just be in the know, but, but to genuinely, I want to hear what my neighbors think. I want to, I want to hear how people are processing things. I want to hear hurts. I want to hear fears. I want to hear celebrations. I, I just, I think that's important. Um, so all that said, as, as, I'm, as I'm taking in, just like the rest of you, all of the information this week, uh, I came across a tweet uh, by a man named Pastor Eric Mason of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up here on the screen. Um, this, this was helpful for me, and it helped guide my thinking this week, and it helped guide my sermon preparation this week, and and this is what he said, every Sunday, every Sunday, we must proclaim Him. But this Sunday needs to be extraordinarily about the Lord of hosts. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, amen. Because, because we are, no matter, again, where, where you're coming from this week, this, this was a tumultuous week, and, and we've had our eyes fixed on so many things over the course of this week. But the one thing that we need is to see the glory of God. We, we've got to look to Him. Uh, and we need to come together as His people and, 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 and encourage each other, even as we hear each other, to encourage each other that the, the most important thing we could do is say, you know what? There's a God in heaven who's on a throne and He's good. And as, as Esteban prayed earlier, he is, the, he is the immovable rock amidst, amidst the tumultuous seas of life. Um, and this passage, Exodus 19, is so good for that. It's so, God's, God's in the sovereignty led us to this passage this week. It's so good for it because in this text this morning, Israel, for the first time, is going to meet God. They're going to actually see the presence of God for the first time. Moses has had some encounters, but the people on the whole, they've, they've seen his works, but, but God is inviting them to, to see him. So we get to do that with the Israelites this morning as we open up the text. And, and, and I, want, I want to point you to this kind of main idea of, of this text, the main idea of the sermon this morning. It's this. It is that our greatest joy and our highest good comes in knowing and in obeying the Lord. That could not be overstated. That, that is, that's the most important thing any of us needs to know in life. That our greatest joy and our highest good comes in knowing and obeying the Lord. And in this text, we're going to see how He reveals Himself to us. It's, it's through the initiation of His grace 
to draw us to a place of fearful worship of him. Fearful indeed, but, but fearful because of the beauty of his holiness. And it's all possible and only possible because of the mediation ministry of his son. That's our main idea this morning. We need to come and see him. It's our, our great joy is in seeing him. And we see him by his grace, which he initiates. And we're brought to worship him in the beauty of an incredible holiness because of Jesus. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask God to do that for us this morning. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. Your revealed word is, is exactly what we need because it points us to who we need, which is you. And so, Father, even as we've been singing this morning, as we've been reading through Scripture, as we've been praying together, Lord, our great request is that you come down, that you meet us here this morning, that our, our gaze is fixed squarely on the glory of God this morning. Even recognizing that the Israelites, as, as we'll read, the Israelites, they couldn't look, but we can in Jesus. So Father, help us to see you. Help our hearts to be encouraged and built up and settled by your glory. Speak, O oh Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four points today from the text, and the first one is that the Lord is our mighty deliverer and bestower of grace, so obey him. Look down at the text. This is Exodus 19. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Now look up for a minute. I, I want to point something out to you. That, something I hadn't thought of before, but as I was reading this, this week in, in uh, Alex Motier's commentary, he points out something interesting. He says that if we, if we recall God's promise to Moses back in chapter 3, verse 8, we, we remember that what he was telling him was that you're going to lead the people out of Egypt, and the destination to which they were to go was this. It's familiar language. To a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey the land of the Canaanites, etc. And, and, and we know by that description and certainly by looking back into history that ultimately where they were headed was to Palestine. If you know anything about the geography of the region, they're in Egypt now, which is on that sort of northeast tip of Africa. They're heading up to Palestine, which is that bend around the Mediterranean, and it's to their northeast, okay? So they're going northeast ultimately here. And yet, here in verses 1 and 2, we find that they've traveled into the wilderness of Sinai. It's not in Palestine. It's across the Red Sea. But then it, instead of directing them left up to the northeast, what happens is it's directing them right down towards the southeast. And fascinatingly, this location is further away from Palestine than they were when they were in Egypt. So if you're the people of Israel and you're following Moses out and you're, you're, you're going to this broad land, there may be this realization along the way that um feels like we're going the wrong way, right? We're, we're, we're further away than where we began. And this is not a lush landscape. This is not a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a desert. So it appears that they're indeed worse off. And yet, as we're going to find here in the text, and even from the promises of God, that's exactly where God meets them. And that's an important thing for us to gather. It seems like they're worse off. It seems like they're further away, and yet that's exactly where God meets them. Isn't that so often how it, it seems to be? Maybe that's true for you too. You say, oh, I, I, I take up God's call to follow him for my deliverance. I put my faith in Jesus and then suddenly I find myself seemingly worse off than I was before. 
seemed like a trajectory of, of all, you know, rose petals and like everything was going to be good. I'm going to go off to the left and I end up going off to the right and I feel further away. Well, here's the thing this morning. We need to recognize and, and they need to recognize. We shouldn't be surprised because that's exactly what God told Moses he was going to do. God said to Moses, as he told them they're going to head to the promised land, he said, when you come out of Egypt, it's at this mountain where I will bring you again to worship me. And when God told Moses those words in Exodus chapter 3, I'll read it, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And where was Moses when that happened? He was in Sinai. He was at Mount Sinai. And so we need to grasp that this, this is how grace works. All right? This is an important thing for us to understand. This is how grace works. In order to get to the promised land, we need to go through the desert. So don't despair this morning. Maybe you feel like you're going through the desert. Maybe this week for you has been the desert. Don't despair. The path to glory runs through the cross. The journey to grace leads through the wilderness. And recognizing that, now God is going to remind them of what they do, in fact, have to sustain their hearts. Yeah, you're in the desert, but listen, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and to tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is so important for our understanding of salvation. God is, is, is telling you this is what you have and he's showing them that there is an order here and it's an order that we can't miss. And listen, we cannot rearrange it. We cannot rearrange it. This is how God works. There is a sequence of grace here. He starts off in verse 4 with this, the saving grace of God. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You didn't do anything to the Egyptians. I acted. I delivered you. I rescued you. I judged them and brought you out. And he says here, and I, I bore you, how I bore you on eagles' wings. It's this beautiful picture of the, of the power of God to, to put them on himself, and he's the one who carried them, right? It's, it was his grace. It was his initiative at work here. I brought you out. The first order of grace, the sequence of grace, is the saving grace of God. And then he says two more things here. He, he, there's this response of obedience that he gives here. Therefore, he says, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You shall be this kingdom of priests. You shall be this holy nation. And what we have to understand about this, and this is so very, very important, is that what he's saying to them is, I'm the one who brought you out. I'm the one who saved you. And, and, and I have set a table for you. Here's what I have accomplished. Here's what I have promised. Here's what I will do for you. I will make you into this people who are my treasured possession, who are holy, who are this kingdom of priests. And he says, in the way that you're going to, to realize that, the way that you're going to step into that is by obedience. It's by keeping the covenant that I have made with you. 
Now, don't read that incorrectly. What he's not saying here is, if you'll obey me, I'll do these things. What he's actually saying to them is, I'm the one who brought you out. I'm the one who's making these things possible, and they're already there for you. And the way that you'll experience them is by keeping the covenant, is through obedience. You're not going to earn these things. I'm giving them to you. You will experience these things as you walk with me, as you listen to me, as you keep the covenant that I have made with you. God won't fail in keeping his end of the covenant. He can't. He just wants them to experience it. So the order here, the sequence of grace is that, is that grace comes, right? And that blessing is given to us and it's experienced through our obedience. I've saved you. I've done it. Now obey me. It's not obey me and then I'll save you. That's the gospel. The gospel is I'm accepted. I'm delivered and therefore I'll obey. Not I'll obey in order to be accepted. Do you understand the difference between the two? One is motivated by love. God, you have brought me out by, by your eagle's wings. You have, you have delivered me from the Egyptians. I'm yours. I, I want to follow you. That's motivated by love. The other side of it is, God, if, if I keep everything right, maybe you'll deliver me. Maybe you'll accept me. That's motivated by fear. That's the wrong kind of fear. So God says, I just want you to step in. I, I want you to experience the things that I've laid out for you. And you'll do it through this obedience. And look at these blessings a little bit more. Just, just so we know what it is that God has already set on the table for us. He says, you will be my treasured possession. For everything, that I, everything that's in the earth is already mine. There's a, there's a beautiful picture here of, of, of a king's treasury. right? If, if the king of Egypt were to be speaking these words to them, he'd say, everything belongs to me. Right? But the king would have probably had a kind of a special treasure box, if you will. A, a, a bit of the treasure that he set aside for himself. This was his treasured possession. Even though everything else belonged to him as well, there was something unique and precious to him that he would keep. This was common that for kings to do. And so God is saying to his people, that, that's true of you. As the people of God, look, I own everything. Everything is mine. All the people are mine. But you, my people that I've saved and delivered, you're precious to me. What a blessing. And what will God do with this treasured possession? He's going to make them like himself. You, you will be holy. You'll be set apart. You'll be purified. You'll be different. You'll be blessed among everybody else to be a kingdom of priests Amazing thing, again, for them to hear this because they're, they're, they're already aware of the priesthood. It was the priests who had access to God. It was the priests who had to stand in the gap. They couldn't go to God yet through the mediation of a priest, and yet God is saying, that won't be the case. As I make you my people, I will make you a people who all of my people, every treasured possession of mine, you will have access to me. It's a beautiful blessing. So God says, step into it. Step into it. Here's how you step into it. You'll obey. What do we obey? That's an important question. I want to step into it. What do I obey? Point number two. The Lord's word is our guide and sustenance. So listen to him. Look back down at the text. The end of verse 6 says, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses came and he called the elders of the people and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All right? You need to obey. What do we obey? Here's my word, right? 
And then we see this response of the people. Okay, we'll do it. There's an enthusiasm about this scene. Moses hiking up the mountain to hear from God and then and, and, and running down again to tell the people what God had commanded. And then they resound with this responding, yes, we'll do it. And, and Moses hikes back up to the mountain. If, if you're reading this right, you're catching, there's, a, there's an enthusiasm here among the people about what's going on. And by the way, you know how I know there's an enthusiasm here? Because I hate hiking. <laughs> I hate hiking. I checked out the elevation of Mount Sinai, and uh, although it's like a 7,000-foot peak, there's a, from the base of it to the top, there's this vertical rise of about 1,100 feet. Now, I know something about that kind of vertical rise. My, my hometown is Phoenix, Arizona. In the middle of Phoenix, there is Camelback Mountain, which has a similar uh, elevation, about, about the same kind of vertical rise. And uh, let me tell you, 1,100 feet is, is no joke. It is no joke. I have struggled mightily to make it to the summit. I know, Cade, you've done it. Um, I don't. Matt and Gina aren't here. I know they've done it. It's a tough hike. It takes me a solid hour. All right. Now I'm 42 years old. I haven't hiked that mountain in several years. I think in the, my 20s I would do it. It'd take me a solid hour. Moses here is an 80-year-old man at this point. And he's running up and down this mountain three times in chapter 19. So I know the guy was motivated, all right? The people were motivated. There's an enthusiasm here. And, and why not? I mean, they've just been reminded of all that God has done for them, and they've pledged their loyalty and devotion to them. As, as God's word has come back and, and, and just, I mean, I can't believe that they would forget it, but they've been reminded, you've seen everything I've done. You saw how I delivered you from the Egyptians. You saw me carry you on wings of eagles. And, and as, they're, as they're hearing this, yes, you know, it, it just wells up. God, you're good. We want to devote ourselves to you. And what would, what would you expect but an impulse of enthusiasm? Do you remember the first time you responded to the gospel? You didn't know what to do, did you? But you knew this, whatever it is, I want to do it. I think that's where they're, what they're feeling right now. But here's the big question. How does that impulse become a way of life? How do I channel all that to actually do something with my enthusiasm? How will they faithfully do all that God commands? And here's the simple answer. He has to tell them what to do. He has to tell them what to do. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. That they might hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Here's how God leads His people into the lifestyle by which their impulse to obey Him will work itself out. He transforms them by obedience to His Word. Hear what I say. Just by way of example, think of the disciples immediately following the resurrection of Christ. Right? They, or, or even think of Paul on the Damascus Road. Right? They're, they're, they're standing before the resurrected Christ. They're recognizing him for, for who he is. They're, 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 they're cognitively aware of all that he's done. And there's this question that's on all of their minds in each of these moments. And the, and the question is basically this. What do we do? And the response is similar to what we're seeing here in Exodus chapter 19. To the disciples in Luke 24, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And with Paul on, on the Damascus Road, again, he, he's blinded by the, the glory of Jesus Christ and, and, and he has this similar question, what, what do I do? And, and Jesus says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. we got to hear what he says. As Moyer says, the, the life of obedience arises out of the Word of God. In our case, it's the Bible, specifically here in Exodus 19, it's the word spoken through Moses. 
which in fact carries as a divine revelation forever. That's what it says here. This is, this is something for you to believe forever, for always. The connection between the life of obedience and the Word of God is inseparable. Do you understand that? It's inseparable. In the Word, we're transformed. And this is, this is a, a, a great sentence that, that Alex Moyer in his commentary said. He says, the Word of God transforms our best intentions to actual conduct. And I think that last sentence is so important. As many of us are, can be so compelled to enthusiastically desire to give ourselves to God and to His ministry in the world, but, but the thing is, apart from direct divine revelation, those intentions can be carried out in misguided ways. I might want to live a life pleasing to God, but without knowledge of His Word, how am I supposed to know what things are indeed pleasing to Him? What is holy conduct? What does that mean? What things are sinful? What does godly marriage and parenting look like? What should my sexual ethic be? How do I respond to, to government and authority? What am I supposed to do with the money that I make? How do I treat my friends? How do I treat my enemies? God's word is very specific instructions for each of these things. Or, or, or maybe I might desire to love my neighbor and to meet their needs. But, but how will I know what things are truly good for my neighbor if I'm not anchored in what God actually says is good for them? What if my good intentions were to cause me to affirm things in their lives that would actually harm them rather than do them good because I haven't pointed them to the truth of Scripture? God's point to Moses and the Israelites here is crystal clear. Holiness, holiness is obedience to revealed truth. The Lord's word is our guide and our sustenance, so listen to him. That's what he wants them to hear. Our third point is this. The Lord is dangerously holy, yet inviting. So worship Him reverently. After giving His people a gospel reminder, an invitation to walk in His blessings and the knowledge that they need to hear His word, the Lord now prepares His people to meet Him. This is an amazing moment. All right. I mentioned before, this is the first time that, that the people of Israel are getting this opportunity to actually step into the presence of God. And, and so as we read this, hear it as the amazing moment that it is. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Here's what the Lord is saying. In order to meet me, you've got to be prepared. The word of God is meant to change you. It's got to permeate into your whole being, mind, heart, soul. And that's what these three days are for. There's some interesting uh, rules, I guess, that they're given here. What are they? Well, first they've got to wash their clothing. And I think there are two reasons for the symbolism of them washing their clothing. The first one seems a little bit more obvious. Cleanliness symbolizes purity, right? We would 
at least assume that much. Cleanliness symbolizes purity. You can't be in the presence of a holy God without first having been purified. But I think there's more to it than just the symbolism of cleanliness uh, and purity. God's not interested in outward purity. He's interested in inward purity. And when you wear symbolic clothing, it's about understanding that what's on the outside is meant to demonstrate what's on the inside, right? I mean, it's, it's not like he just wants us to wear certain things. It's, 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 there's got to be this understanding of, of what's underneath it. It's about having a prepared and purified heart. One of the commentaries I, I, I read this week pointed out a great analogy is a bride on her wedding day. She wears a white bridal gown, and if you were to bump into her on her way to her wedding wearing the gown and you were to say, why are you dressed like a bride? She's going to say, because I am a bride, right? And I'm, a, I'm on my way to go get married. My clothing reflects who I actually am, right? And so that's kind of the idea here. It, the, the cleanliness of their clothing is to reflect an, an, an underlying reality of who they are. They, they have to be purified before the Lord, so our hearts must be prepared and purified in order to enter the presence of God. But it's not just our hearts. We see some other things here that, that, that would lead us to think our minds must be devoted to him. Our will must be devoted, devoted to him as well, which is why the boundaries are set. Interesting boundaries. You, you know, I'm inviting you to come and meet me here, but, but don't actually go on the mountain. If you go on the mountain, you're going to die. Don't touch it. If somebody touches it. If an animal touches it, you've got to put them to death. And you can't engage in sexual relations for this three-day period. Don't go near a woman. That's what that means. Well, why? Well, no doubt the, the mountain boundary speaks something about the holiness of God. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I'm thinking back even to God's meeting with, with Moses. Remember in the burning bush, and he says to him, don't come near. You take off your sandals for the place that you're standing is, is holy ground. I think this is a similar kind of, uh, of admonition to the people. Like, you can't come near yet. It is holy ground. But I imagine also what it would be like, and I, and I want you to imagine this with me, what would it do to, to, to your mindset to consider the threat of that boundary for three days? Three days of, of being at the base and having that, that cognitive awareness that I can't go there. And I was thinking about earlier this week, I was, I was out here and I was watching some of the, the, the moms on the, the lot here as the little kids were riding their bikes in the, in the playground. And, and there's this rule for all the little kids as they're riding their scooters and their bikes is, is don't go in the alley. Right? Cars are whipping by in the alley. So the moms are always kind of standing over there trying to herd the kids like, don't go in the alley. Hey, get out. Don't, don't go to the alley. Could you imagine what it would be like as a parent of a little kid for three days in this situation trying to make sure that they didn't accidentally wander off and get too close to the mountain? I would think that would be a panic moment for three days. I think your heart rate would be <gasps> the whole time, Right? Or if you're a shepherd, I mean, it's one thing to tell a kid, don't go near the alley. You can't tell a sheep or a cow. And yet if you're a shepherd and, and your livelihood is wandering around and you're thinking, I have to make sure they don't step foot on the mountain for three days. Oh my goodness, right? What's the point of that? Well, the point of that, I think, is that for three days, you're going to be consumed with the thought of God's holiness. And you're going to be consumed with the thought of the danger that God's holiness poses to you, a sinful person. You're not going to be able to not think about that for three days. And no marital intimacy. Is this because sex is sinful? Okay, funny story. I was watching television over the weekend. I saw this movie trailer. I, don't, I can't remember the name of the movie, but uh, it's a Warren Beatty film, and it's got Matthew Broderick in it. And there's this scene in the movie trailer where this young man is standing in this dance hall, and he's looking at this young woman that he's got an interest in, and, and he's, he's kind of staring at her. You get the sense like he wants to go and, and dance with her. And, and Matthew Broderick's character comes up behind his shoulder and says, you know why Baptists think sex is wrong? Because it might lead to dancing. I, that made me laugh for like an hour. I thought that was great. 
I can assure you, God thinks sex is quite good, okay? He, he created it. But, but why? Listen, why did he create it? Because of its intimacy, right? Because there's, there's, there's nothing really uh, quite like it that involves a total absorption with your partner, with each other. There's the deepest emotional delight. There is the deepest commitment, So here's the point. What permeates the heart must also permeate the emotions and the will. God is saying to his people, I want you devoted to me. I don't want you thinking about, I don't want your emotions going anywhere else that could, that could make your devotions go anywhere else. If you're going to meet with me, you need to be devoted entirely to me. Heart, mind, emotion, will. That's what's required to worship God properly. And how easy is it for us to forget that? Right? Were you thinking about that on your way to church this morning? Were you sober-minded that way on your way to church this morning, thinking like, to meet with God is to come devoted? Or was my mind thinking about lunch today? Was it thinking about the election this week? Was it thinking about whatever? Right? How easy is it for us to forget that? And here's why he requires this purity of devotion. There's a very simple reason, yet it's totally profound. It's because he's supreme. He is awesomely, terribly, wonderfully holy. Hear those words. And, 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 and as we read the next section of text, again, hear these words and let the moment sink in. What would you be thinking and feeling if you witnessed what comes next? Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Remember how many people we're talking about? We're, we're talking about two and a half to three million people. They're trembling. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Did you see any of that in your mind's eye? God's holiness is both beautiful. beautiful. I mean, to see that would be awe-inspiring, and yet it's terrifying at the same time. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They're going to say that in just a few chapters. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, as well might a gnat, a gnat, seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God. A God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp Him, He could not be infinite. If we could understand Him, He could not be divine. That's what, they're, that's what they're experiencing in this moment. They're seeing the glory of God and it's, it's overwhelming them in trembling. Do you tremble? And then something unexpected happened. Again, go back to verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. The people here are about to meet God. They are invited to come by the sound of the trumpet, but then God lays even more safeguards and restrictions on them. Did you catch that? They had already been doing the purification thing for three days. They had already you know, done the clothing and all that stuff. They, they had not come up to touch the mountain. They're, they're told when the trumpet sounds, you're to come up. And they, they hear the trumpet, but then God says, no, don't come up. Moses, I think the wording here is a little, a little weird, but I think what Moses is saying is, God, didn't you already give us restrictions? He's a little surprised that, that God seems to be imposing even more. And here's, I think, the point, that even with all of their other preparations, it's not enough. In the presence of this holy God, it is not enough. They cannot break through to look at God. They're told to stop. And Moses is asked to ascend the mountain alone for a third time. You know, what, 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 what is this? They're dealing with a holy God. And not even their best efforts of purification, not even their best intentions are enough to make them fit for his presence without being in extreme danger of obliteration. What a picture for them. Three days of preparation. I mean, you, you, you get the sense that maybe, maybe after three days they were starting to feel a little confident. All right, we've done what we're supposed to do. We can do this now. We can walk up. Wow, we can walk up now. Look at our clean clothes. I haven't touched my wife for three days. I'm ready. And God's like, you're not ready. You're not even close. Well, the priests ought to be ready. <laughs> They're the priests, and the priests are the ones who are supposed to have access. And God says, no, the priests can't even come. You are not ready. You are not prepared for this. Do you have any idea how holy I am? No office or position makes us fit to stand in his presence. That's the point. But the trumpet sounded. There is an invitation, right? So how do we take up the Lord's invitation to come if we can only come so far? Well, before I answer that, before the text answers that, let's just at least let the admonition remind us of the danger of presuming upon God's grace. Of forgetting his wonderful power. Of casually approaching him apart from the needed covering and protection of the answer. You need a mediator. They still need Moses to mediate for them. And that leads us to our fourth point. The Lord is our mediator, so trust in him. Verse 25 is short but profound. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Moses went down. You can read right over that and miss the complete significance and importance of that. But here's, here, it's there. The mediator has to come down to them. They're being called to come up to God. God says, you can't come up to me. You're not prepared for this. So the mediator will come down. This is meant, of course, to point us to the need of our ultimate mediator. Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why is Jesus the better mediator? Listen, this is so good. Because his mediation doesn't just prepare our hearts, minds, and emotions by asking us to purify ourselves for three days. That's the mediation work of Moses. 
Purify yourself for three days. Jesus is the better mediator because Jesus doesn't ask us to purify ourselves for three days. He spent three days on a cross, in the tomb, and in resurrection to wash us clean, not on the outside, but on the inside by his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. Hebrews 9 says he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For the, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Praise God for Christ. God is infinitely dangerous. He is infinitely dangerous. But he's also inviting. Just look up for a second. Can I ask you something? Where would you be without Jesus? Where would we be? Could you, could you imagine having to walk through the, the, the tumultuous nature of the last 18 months of, of everybody telling you that the world's on fire and it's going to end if this person gets into office or that person gets into office? And, and, and not to minimize the, the realities that there's going to be some impacts of whoever got into office, but could you imagine if your only hope was in the outcome of that election? Could you imagine if you were... If you were cognitively aware, deeply aware of your sin this morning and, and, and your, your, your thought of approaching God. Maybe it was this way. Maybe you came to church this morning with, with a, a sense of guilt that was on you so much so that you thought, God can't, he can't speak to me. I can't go near him. I, I, I recognize that I fall way short. Where would you be without Jesus. Where are you indeed in Christ Jesus? You want to know where you are, Christian? You're in the presence of a holy God. And you are able to meet with him fully. To commune with him and worship freely as adopted children through the mediation of Jesus. These are the blessings that God has already laid out for his people. By his grace... And he's saying, it's in Jesus that you become my treasured possession. It's in Jesus that you become a holy people. He will wash you clean from the inside out. It's in Jesus that you become a nation of priests. You don't need a priest anymore because Jesus is your great high priest. You have access. These are the blessings that God has laid out for us already by his grace. He has carried us on the wings of eagles to this point through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through his spirits calling us out to see and to respond to that great reality. How do we enter into it? How do we live in that? How do we experience it? Through the obedience of responding to his word in repentance and faith, trusting Christ to make us clean. The gospel is beautiful news. You know how you know it and apply it? He's told you, listen and obey. Our greatest joy and highest good comes in knowing and obeying the Lord through the initiation of his grace, in fearful worship of him in the beauty of his holiness, and because of the mediation ministry of his son. Amen.
Can I just give you a, a couple of, of uh, application points on that? I hope the application is already pretty clear. <laughs> we need to fix our gaze on the glory of God. But a, a couple of things. The first one is this. Uh, boy, this was so helpful for me this week. To, to be reminded, fear God, not man. What a holy God we have. What, what, not only a holy God, but again, the inviting nature of this God that he would secure our inheritance, he would make us truly secure in himself, no matter what, that the tumultuous waves of the earth will, 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 will toss back and forth, and, and yet there's a rock that is immovable in God and, and Jesus Christ. And we're called to, to look on him, to anchor ourselves in him. Fear God, not man. And, and, and I think this is important too. Let, let this truly change the way you view going to church. <laughs> I've been convicted about that lately, you know? Sunday mornings can be awfully scattered mornings for a pastor. I'm coming in early. I'm trying to make sure everything's set up. I'm, people are grabbing my attention, and, and that, that's all fine and good. But you know what it can do? It can, it can make me sort of enter into the, 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 the gathering of his people, the presence of God with a, a very scattered heart. And I hear it from you all the time, from, from several of you all the time, and I, I get it, I totally understand, but I, but I hear, you know, the, the, it's, just, it's hard enough for me to just kind of walk into this room sometimes. I, you know, I, all the things that are swirling around, and whew, I get that. But do you, do, you, do you recognize what we do when we come into this room? We come together as the people of God. It's an Exodus 19 moment all again. We are invited into his presence. And to worship him properly demands the devotion of our minds and our hearts, our emotions, and our will. God is saying, prepare yourself. Not that if we don't prepare ourselves enough, he can't meet with us. Jesus has prepared you. But you got to step into that and to believe it. And oh boy, that ought to change the way we come to church. God is holy and he's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you point us to the beauty of your holiness. And thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us in that position of standing at the base of the mountain with no access to you lest we perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that those who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. You've given us access to you. You've made us truly clean. And you've fixed us to be able to see you for who you are. Oh, you're worthy. Thank you, God, for who you are. Let us sing now with that, that sense of awe and reverence as we worship you and as we go out in this world to live in a way that fears you, not man, and reflects something of the holy nation that you've declared us to be in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.